committee will come to order. Thank you all for attending today. Uh, today we're going to hold the nomination hearing on a very important position. Our nominee today is the Honorable John J. Sullivan to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation. First, we have two distinguished, very distinguished, I might add, colleagues of ours who wish to introduce our nominees. So we're going to allow them to proceed with introductions. Uh, therefore, I'm going to postpone my opening statement. I ask the ranking member to do likewise until the nominees have been introduced. And with that, we're, uh, we're glad to be joined today by Senators Dan Sullivan of Alaska and Ben Cardin of Maryland. And I understand that uh, Senator Sullivan has drawn the straw to go first. Senator Thank you, Sullivan, Mr. Chairman. You Thank floor. you very much, and Ranking Member Menendez and all the members of the committee. It's an honor to be before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee again on behalf of my friend John Sullivan uh, to support his nomination to be the United States Ambassador to the Russian Federation. Uh, despite what his last name would suggest, we are not related, although I occasionally joke with Senator Markey, who's also a proud Sullivan member in his heritage that somewhere back in history we were probably all related. Um, I have publicly supported Secretary Sullivan's nomination once before and can speak to his long distinguished career, all of which, are you, uh, of which you are familiar. And I would begin by stating that John's experience and qualifications have already been endorsed by this committee and by the United States Senate previously confirmed as Deputy Secretary in May 2017 by a vote of 94 to 6 and confirmed in the Bush administration in March 2008 unanimously uh, to be Deputy Secretary of Commerce and in July 2005 unanimously by the Senate to be General Counsel of the Department of Commerce by a voice vote. I first met John when we were serving together in the uh, George W. Bush administration I was working as an Assistant Secretary of State under Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and John was the Deputy Secretary of Commerce. And most notably, since 2017, John has successfully served as the United States Deputy Secretary of State with integrity. He has done an extremely impressive job in this critical role, widely respected, not just across federal national security agencies and our own government, but internationally, and most importantly, by the employees of the Department of State, which he has helped to lead. He has worked with them, led them, stood by them, and for them as his tenure as Deputy Secretary. Now, I don't often take to quoting the national media, but you may have noticed that there is a wide cross-section of journalists and media in our country that have noted John's qualifications and reaffirmed the positive impact he has already had on the State Department. An article from Politico recently stated, John Sullivan, the Deputy Secretary, is winning over State Department employees. So far, Sullivan has shown a fluency with diplomacy that has delighted his colleagues in the State Department. The Washington Examiner, Sullivan is smart, calm, experienced, three crucial ingredients in leading the U.S. mission to Russia. And in a Wall Street Journal op-ed by Ambassador Thomas Pickering, one of our nation's most distinguished career diplomats, he said of Secretary Sullivan, I've come to respect John Sullivan's judgment, 
is balance, his good sense, his open-minded approach to how to deal with the difficult foreign relations problems our country has. Mr. Chairman, you may have also seen this very long letter of distinguished national security executives and former diplomats and military officials and secretaries of defense and other positions who are all uh, endorsing Secretary Sullivan's ambassadorship to Russia. As it relates to the responsibilities with regard to the new position for which he has been nominated, uh, Deputy Secretary Sullivan currently leads the only two ongoing U.S.-Russia dialogues on counterterrorism and strategic security. He has also played a key role in numerous bilateral issues relating to the U.S.-Russia relationship over the past two years. At a time when U.S.-Russia relations are more complex and strained and difficult than ever, it is important to have someone like John as America's top diplomat. Mr. Chairman, a few months ago, I had the honor of introducing another outstanding American before this committee, General John Abizade, to be ambassador to Saudi Arabia. At the time, I said that while there were many disagreements in this body about our policy towards Saudi Arabia, there should be consensus that we need a well-respected U.S. ambassador there. The same, hold true with, the same holds true with Russia today. John Sullivan is a man of integrity, and he understands what it means to honorably serve our nation and has a career of doing so. I urge this committee to support his nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You uh, mentioned the letter that was addressed to myself and Senator Menendez from a distinguished group of uh, people uh, with, from various aspects of uh, public service. I'm going to introduce. I'm going to admit that into the record uh, now, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez. I'm pleased to join Senator Sullivan in introducing uh, Secretary Sullivan uh, to this committee. Uh, Secretary Sullivan, as a Marylander who has a Boston accent. Uh, he has served our nation. Sounds more like Senator Markey than he does me, but that's fine. Uh, he has served our nation well at, in public service uh, as Deputy Secretary of State since May of 2017 and Acting Secretary of State in April, April 18, uh, and senior positions in the Department of Justice, the Defense Department, Commerce. Um, two decades as a private attorney, he's well qualified uh, for this position. John Sullivan's, uh, to me, is a straight shooter. Uh, he's an experienced public servant. My experience with him uh, is that he has communicated with me effectively and honestly. He reached out to inform me when I was the ranking Democrat on this committee, and he's respected my role as a United States Senator as, and as a member uh, of this committee. Most recently in our conversations, he told me he was looking for a challenge when he agreed to take this position. Well, you certainly will have a challenge if confirmed as ambassador to Russia. Uh, this is a, a challenging position. Russia has been our adversary, make no mistake about it. And the, they interfered in the 2016 elections, uh, and that was not isolated to the United States. A report that I authored on behalf of this committee uh, in 2018 pointed out Mr. Putin's asymmetric arsenal and his attack against democratic institutions and democratic uh, countries uh, in Europe and in now in the United States. He invaded and occupied and still occupies Ukraine uh, in violation of every principle of the Helsinki Final Accords. 
Uh, Mr. Uh, Putin also is occupying Russia in Georgia and Moldova. He's interfered in Syria. He's violated the human rights of his own citizens, leading to the enactment of the Magnitsky Law, not only here in the United States, but in countries around the world. And the list goes on and on and on. So, Mr. Chairman, we need a confirmed ambassador who will support our democratic principles and give hope to the voices in Russia that stand up to the repressive regime of Mr. Putin. Uh, let me conclude by just quoting from Secretary Sullivan on his nomination hearing that Senator Sullivan referred to uh, on May 9th, 2017, when the nominee told us, our greatest asset is our commitment to the fundamental values expressed at the founding of our nation, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are basic human rights, are the bedrock of our republic, and at the heart of American leadership in the world. I couldn't agree more with those statements. I thank John Sullivan and his family for being willing to step forward to take on this challenge. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Thank to, thanks to both of you. And Senator Sullivan, I know you've got a commitment. Senator Cardin, you are. I have a commitment also. You do. You do. <laughs> We're glad to have you. Well, again, thank, I want to thank all of you uh, for coming. Uh, John, welcome. Uh, we're going to contemplate the nomination today of the Honorable John Sullivan to be United States Ambassador to the Russian Federation. We welcome you back to the committee and thank you for your willingness to continue serving in what is a challenging but very important role. Having been here before, I have no doubt that this will be a brief hearing and my colleagues will be kind and generous with you as we go through this. Uh, as Senators Cardin and Sullivan have already given uh, uh, Deputy Secretary Sullivan an introduction, I'll simply take a few moments to talk about the importance of this position. Most would agree that the U.S. relationship with Russia is at a, at a low point. Successive U.S. presidents of both political parties have attempted to reset the relationship only to find that the other side is an unwilling partner. This is caused uh, in no little part by our very different value sets and our very different views on helping mankind. Bilaterally, the past few years have been marked by Russia's interference in the American electoral process and has already been noted by uh, their interference in other electoral processes around the globe. By the expulsion of each other's diplomats and by a complete uh, uh, lack of trust due to Russians' worldwide bad conduct. Internationally, rather than acting like the global power that it proclaims to be, Russia has, told, has chosen to wreak havoc. We are all familiar with the long, long list of Russia's malign global activity. It has shredded international agreements, like the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, and seized sovereign territory from both uh, Georgia and Ukraine that it continues to occupy today in violation of all international norms and indeed uh, United Nations condemnation. It has poisoned its enemies with chemical weapons on foreign soil and violated the INF Treaty so blatantly that all NATO allies reached a unanimous conclusion on those violations. Russia's support has kept brutal dictators in power in Syria and Venezuela long after they should have and would have fallen, and the government continues to meddle in the elections of other democratic states, such as the Brexit referendum. It has even gone so far as attempt a coup in Montenegro in 2016. Thankfully, 
Other uh, than those of the international community who engage in similar conduct, most countries recognize Russia's malign global influence and have taken action. The EU and US have sanctioned corrupt Russian oligarchs under the Magnitsky Act, its defense industry under Katza, and its energy industry by executive order, all of which strain Russia's ability to raise government revenue and to act maliciously. I hope the House and Senate will soon act to pass the bill sponsored by Senators Cruz and Shaheen that will sanction those involved in laying the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Most of us have worked and continue to work to get that done. Despite our many issues with the Kremlin, there are also times of co cooperation with the Russians, like in the area of counterterrorism. And it's important we make clear to the Russian people that we do value our relationship with them. We should make sure that education and cultural exchanges still take place and that we support civil society in their country in any way we can, notwithstanding the malign acts of their leaders. Russia is a proud and important country on the international stage, and the U.S.-Russia relationship will exist long after Putin is gone. All this leads me to the reason we are here today, to evaluate the nomination of Deputy Secretary Sullivan to be the top U.S. representative to a country that we have such a contentious relationship with. It is an incredibly important role. Uh, Deputy Secretary Sullivan is ready for this role. He has served the U.S. government at the Department of Commerce, Defense, Justice, and now at State. I'm confident that the past two years serving as our Deputy Secretary of State has given him a clear view of the multitude of problems we have with Russia, the U.S. government's efforts to resolve them, and the experience to navigate both our system and uh, Russia's system. I'm honored and pleased to hear uh, the compliments that you've received from both sides of the aisle, even from the uh, national media. Thank you for being here today. Thank you to your family for uh, uh, sharing the sacrifice it's going to take to do this. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ranking Member Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, congratulations on your nomination. Uh, you understand the role of Congress as a co-equal branch of government, and you have differentiated yourself from those in the administration who have sought to break every norm in the conduct of foreign policy. And that's why we expect continued candidness from you here today. Unfortunately, one person, no matter how skilled and dedicated, cannot counteract the disarray that is the Trump administration's foreign policy. I have served 27 years between the House and the Senate and worked on foreign policy that entire time. Never before have I seen such chaos and U.S. policy incoherence from Syria to Turkey to Iran to Ukraine and to Russia. Our State Department is on the front lines of our national defense. They are patriots charged with achieving our goals through diplomacy, not conflict. Never in my 27 years have I seen the department so mismanaged and so many of our diplomats maligned. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just look to the testimony of two patriots, Ambassador Yovanovitch and Ambassador Taylor. The denigration of these two dedicated public servants is a disgrace. The State Department is in disarray, a casualty of President Trump's decision to, US nationals, to use U.S. national security as a political weapon. And never in my 27 years have I seen a department or an administration so willing to stick its thumb directly in the eye of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. 
I don't think we have to cite the Constitution here today, but I'm certainly prepared to do so. Over the years, there's been friction and disagreements between the legislative and executive branch. Those are all normal. But we've entered new territory, dangerous territory for our republic. And I'm not just talking about the House's current inquiry. I'm talking about asking 20 times to get a basic piece of information. The extreme lengths we've had to go through to get a single document. The department refusing to even discuss certain matters. This is not just playing hardball. It's undermining our democratic system of government. And unfortunately, Mr. Secretary, this has taken place under your watch and under the direction of Secretary Pompeo. The Secretary has a lot to answer for, but I believe so do you. We'll talk about uh, all of those issues that have uh, been so central to the administration of the State Department over the past two and a half years. We're also here to talk about your vision for the bilateral relations with the Russian Federation. I, for one, do not believe that Russia should be playing the role it is in Syria. I don't believe that those who do business with the Russian military, like Turkey, should be given a free pass under Katza. I don't for believe that Russia belongs in the G7, at least not until they change the course of events. And I don't believe that it's acceptable to delay security assistance for Ukraine, a move that directly benefits Russia. President Trump, however, is on the record as believing all of those things. He believes every single one. Now, I think the president has lost any shred of legitimacy on Russia when he delayed security assistance for Ukraine. Ukrainians died because of this delay and died at the hands of Russia forces, and America was made less safe. So, Mr. Secretary, I want you to succeed in Moscow if you're confirmed. I really do. But I need to hear directly from you as to what constitutes success. Is success fulfilling President Trump's pro-Kremlin vision for the U.S.-Russia bilateral relationship? Or will you actually advocate a policy that protects U.S. national security? It's a fundamentally important choice. If it's the former, I'll have serious reservations about supporting your nomination. If it's the latter, then I'm open to the conversation. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this fundamental choice. U.S. policy in Russia has been intrinsically wrapped up in our Ukraine policy. Given that Russian forces continue their onslaught against Ukrainian troops and civilians in the Donbass. An onslaught, I will again note, that was made easier by the delay in providing security assistance. Your position at the State Department would have afforded you the responsibility of overseeing the conduct of policy. What did you know about the role played by Rudy Giuliani? Did Kurt Volker's unique volunteer status lead to conflicts of interest in a confusing policymaking process? Where was the State Department leadership, yourself included, when it came to defending Ambassador Yovanovitch and others? Now, I supported you for your present position. Uh, but before I vote on your nomination, uh, we're going to need answers to these and other questions. So I can't guarantee you the chairman's suggestion that this will be a quick uh, and uh, simple uh, and kind hearing. I do guarantee you it will be a fair uh, an honest one, and I look forward to your answers uh, to the questions that we'll be posing. Thank you, uh, Senator Menendez, for your views, as always. We'll now turn to our nominee, Deputy Secretary Sullivan. As uh, Senators Sullivan and Cardin mentioned, John Sullivan currently serves as the Deputy Secretary of State, a position he has held since 2017. Prior to serving as Deputy, Deputy Secretary, he has served in several senior positions at the Departments of Commerce, Justice, and Defense, as well as uh, a partner in several law firms. Deputy Secretary Sullivan, thank you. Thank you to your family. 
uh, the letter from the 40 former officials from previous administrations, Democrat and Republican, uh, that have been entered into, re into the record certainly speak to the uh, high regard in which they hold you. So with that, we'll turn it over to you. Your full statement will be included in the record. We'd ask you to spend about five minutes talking to us about your views on these matters. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Sullivan. Thank you, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of, of the committee. It's an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Russian Federation. I want to thank the President for his confidence in me and for the opportunity, with the Senate's consent, to represent our nation in Moscow. I also want to thank Secretary Mike Pompeo for his leadership of the Department of State and his support of my nomination. Finally, I'm indebted to our most recent ambassador to Russia, my friend John Huntsman, for his leadership of our mission there and his advice as I seek to succeed him. I come before the committee, as you noted, Mr. Chairman, after serving for two and a half years as the Deputy Secretary of State and six weeks of that tenure as the Acting Secretary. My service at the Department, working with the men and women of the Foreign and Civil Service in Washington and around the world, has been the most rewarding professional experience of my life. But my service would not have been possible without the love and support of my family, who joined me here today, my wife, Grace Rodriguez, and our children, Jack, Katie, and Teddy, my mother-in-law, Graciela Rodriguez, and my sister-in-law, Susan Rodriguez, her husband, Tony, and their children, Evan and Cameron. I'm eternally grateful to them for their support. If confirmed as the U.S. Ambassador to Russia, I will bring to my position not only my experience as the Deputy Secretary of State, but also my prior experience, as you noted, Mr. Chairman, in a variety of other government positions over the last 35 years. I believe my background and experience, earned in four cabinet departments across three presidential administrations, has prepared me to assume the profound responsibilities of serving as our chief of mission in Moscow. And experience teaches that this diplomatic mission will not be easy or simple. Our relationship with Russia has reached a post-Cold War ebb. The litany of Russia's malign actions that have severely strained our relationship is painfully familiar to this committee. Attempting to interfere in our and our allies' elections, violating the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine and Georgia, employing a weapon of mass destruction in an attempt to assassinate its citizens abroad, violating the INF Treaty, and infringing on the basic human rights of its people, among other things. Yet the need for principled engagement with Russia is as important to our national interest as ever. Russia's status as a nuclear superpower and permanent member of the UN Security Council compels us to engage on a range of issues involving global stability and security. This requires sustained diplomacy with the Russian government in areas of shared interest, for example, in arms control, nonproliferation, counterterrorism, but resolute opposition to Russia where it undermines the interests and values of the United States and our allies and partners, for example, by threatening stability in Europe and election security in the United States. As the Deputy Secretary of State, I've been directly involved in developing U.S. policy on Russia. I lead the U.S. participation in an ongoing counterterrorism dialogue with the Russians, and I led a senior U.S. delegation to Geneva in mid-July to restart a U.S.-Russia strategic security dialogue. Last month, I participated in the decision to impose sanctions on Yevgeny Prigozhin 
and others associated with the Internet Research Agency for their attempts to interfere with the U.S. 2018 midterm elections. In considering these complex issues, I want to acknowledge this committee's leadership and insights on Russia. As I've mentioned in recent meetings with many of you, if confirmed, I would welcome the opportunity to consult and collaborate with members of this committee individually and collectively on our Russia policy. If confirmed, I will continue to support dialogues with the Russian government on counterterrorism and arms control, as well as on denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula, on finding a peaceful solution to the conflict in Afghanistan, on Syria, and many other issues. But I will be relentless in opposing Russian efforts to interfere in U.S. elections, to violate the sovereignty of Ukraine and Georgia, and to engage in the malign behavior that has reduced our relationship to such a low level of trust. I assure the committee that I will also be indefatigable in protecting the American citizens who live in and travel to Russia, including the U.S. business community, scholars, athletes, tourists, and all Americans who visit the Russia Federation. If confirmed, I intend to continue to press the Russian government for the release of Paul Whelan, who has been in prison without charges for almost a year now, and to demand that Michael Calvi's case be disposed of in a civil proceeding, not in a criminal court. If confirmed, I look forward to working, uh, engaging with the Russian people to celebrate Russian culture, commemorate Russian history, listen to their perspectives on the issues that unite and divide us, and convey to them directly my American perspective on those issues as well. I will also continue to promote, in accordance with U.S. law, people-to-people -people exchanges to foster a better understanding among the Russian people of the United States, and as I have done during my travels as Deputy Secretary of State, I will meet with civil society, including religious leaders and human rights activists. Finally, there would be no greater honor for me, if confirmed as the U.S. Ambassador to Russia, than to serve with the dedicated women and men and their families who constitute our mission in Russia. I know from firsthand experience that it is not easy to be a U.S. diplomat in Moscow, Yekaterinburg, or Vladivostok. Yet dedicated career officers from across the U.S. government are serving with distinction in the wake of massive staff cuts, uncertainty, and intense pressure from the host government. Their tenacity in the face of these challenges is inspiring, Indeed, it was the example of my colleagues in Mission Russia that inspired me to seek to leave Washington and join them on the front lines of American diplomacy. I humbly ask this committee for that opportunity. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to be appear before you today. I welcome your comments and questions. Thank you so much. Uh, we're now going to do a round of uh, a five-minute round of questioning. I'm going to reserve my time and will yield to uh, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Uh, Chairman. Thank you, uh, Secretary, for your statement. Do you think it's ever appropriate for the president uh, to use his office to solicit investigations into a domestic political opponent? My apologies. Uh, soliciting investigations into a domestic political opponent, uh, I don't think that would be in accord with our, our values. Uh, as the Deputy Secretary of State, 
Are you aware of any other efforts by the President or anyone else to encourage, suggest, or request that a foreign government investigate one of the President's political rivals? I'm not aware of, of any such, Senator. Not to President Xi? No. Prime Minister May? I'm not aware of that, Senator. Let me ask you, you relayed to me, and I appreciate you came by to uh, meet with me, and we had a, uh, a, an in-depth discussion. You relayed to me in our meeting yesterday that you personally had met Ambassador Yovanovitch in Kiev earlier this year, is that correct? Uh, last year, actually. Last year, okay. Uh, so you would agree that she served the Department uh, of State and represented the United States capably and admirably? I told her so. Uh, yet you were the one who told Ambassador Ivanovich that she was being recalled early, correct? I did. Uh, in your view, was there any basis to recall Ambassador Ivanovich early? Uh, yes, there was. The president had lost confidence in her. The president had lost confidence in her. Yes. Uh, and you were told that by the Secretary of State? I was. Uh, did you ask why? He lost confidence in her? Yes. And what was the answer? I was told that he had lost confidence in her, period. Well, that's not a why. He just lost confidence in her. I didn't explain why. You asked if I asked. I asked what I was and told. Answer, was that and the answer you got was that he just he had lost confidence. didn't explain why he lost confidence in her. Now, uh, you said to me yesterday, once you were given this assignment, you wanted to treat Ambassador Ivanovich with respect. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, the best way to show respect would have been to push back uh, to, on the secretary and say, why are we recalling someone who's, by the way, whose term had been extended, and then we're recalling her back, even though there was only a few months left in her nomination, a career ambassador. Why, why didn't you push back? Well, as, I, as we also discussed yesterday, Senator, this had been a discussion uh, that I'd had with the secretary over a period of time, and the secretary, in turn, had pushed back and sought uh, justification from those who were criticizing Ambassador Yovanovitch. And at the, after, uh, after several months had elapsed, the secretary finally told me that there had come a point at which this, the president had lost confidence in the ambassador and that we needed to, uh, to make a change in our mission to Ukraine. You were aware that there were individuals and forces outside of the State Department seeking to smear Ambassador Yovanovitch, is that correct? I was. And, that, and to seeking to remove her, is that correct? I was. And did you know Mr. Giuliani was one of those people? I believed uh, he was, yes. Uh, when, in fact, this came about, did you ever personally advocate for a statement of support on behalf of Ambassador Yovanovitch? At the time of her removal, I did not. So let me turn then uh, to some of these other questions. Uh, what, what did you know about a shadow Ukraine policy being carried out by Rudy Giuliani? My, my knowledge in the spring and summer of this year about uh, any involvement of, uh, of Mr. Giuliani was in connection with a campaign against our ambassador to Ukraine. And uh, you were uh, given a packet of disinformation attempting to smear Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, given to you, as, I'm, as if I recall correctly, our conversation by the State Department counsel? Counselor. Counselor. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a, in response to inquiries by uh, by the secretary and others about what uh, our ambassador had done, uh, we got, as I understood, that packet of materials. Now, did the counselor tell you how he, the package came to him? 
he had been given it, uh, either he or the secretary, I believe it was he, he had received that, uh, that packet from someone at the White House. And, and did he tell you that he and the secretary read the package? He, he had read the packet. I don't know whether, the, I don't believe the secretary had. Did you read the package? I did. And what did you think of it? Uh, it didn't provide to me a basis for taking action against our ambassador, but I wasn't aware of uh, all of that might be going on in the background. And to be cautious, I asked that the uh, the packet of materials, both for purposes of assessing the truth of the matters that were being asserted and their relevance, and the provenance of the package, who was giving it to us to influence us, uh, be looked at by the Inspector General and, and by the Justice Department. Did you know it was Mr. Giuliani who created that package? Uh, I, I don't know that. You don't uh, to this know day, that. I don't know that. You didn't ask where did it come from? I did, but I don't, but yes, I and, did ask, but I don't know. And no one told you where it came from? No. So it happened by immaculate conception? Hence my referral of the package. Well, the reason I asked you this line of question is because you're going to an embassy, one of the most critical uh, uh, positions in the national interest and security of the United States, in which I think the president's views differ clearly from many on both sides of the aisle as it relates vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And there may be moments in time in which what happened in Ukraine is going to be happening as it relates to Russia. And the question is, what will you do? What will you do? Uh, I will follow the law in my conscience. In this instance, with respect to the removal of the ambassador, my experience had been uh, that when the president loses confidence in an ambassador, no matter what the reason, that the president's confidence in his ambassador in a capital is, uh, is the coin of the realm, the most important thing for that ambassador. And if he's lost that confidence, and this happened, as I think I, I may have mentioned to some of the members of this committee, to my uncle when he was the uh, last U.S. ambassador to Iran, President Carter at, thought that my uncle was disloyal to the administration and to the president in his policies. And in January of 1979, asked Secretary Vance to have my uncle removed as our ambassador. Secretary Vance objected, said that my uncle was implementing the administration's policies. He pushed back. M several months later, the White House, the president, said, Sullivan's got to come out. He was removed as our ambassador. He was undermined by the White House. There were leaks about his character, his loyalty to the United States and to the administration. And as a result, after 32 years of service in the Foreign Service, three-time ambassador, he resigned from the Foreign Service. So when the president loses confidence in the ambassador, right or wrong, the ambassador needs to come home. Well, I'll just close by saying <clears throat> I appreciate you told me that story, and I appreciate hearing it again. Uh, when the president loses faith in an ambassador because of political reasons, not because of policy reasons, not because the ambassador has been disloyal to the United States, not because the ambassador is not doing their job, when it is because surrogates like Mr. Giuliani and others who have political and economic interests are pushing against our ambassador, uh, I would have hoped that you would have spoken up a lot more loudly. And if you get this position, I would expect you, if that happens to our people in the U.S. Embassy in Russia, that you will speak up much more forcefully. 
because that's the essence of being an ambassador. Yes, to represent the nation, but also to defend the men and women who work every day and should be insulated from that type of, of, of political consequence. And so uh, th this, is, this is something that, with the experience you just told me about, I would have thought that you would have been more forceful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Romney. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Secretary Sullivan, for your willingness to serve in the Foreign Service and particularly to go on a foreign assignment uh, in a, uh, a far-off and uh, cold place. Um, I, uh, I acknowledge that, uh, that you will be filling uh, uh, big shoes. Uh, Ambassador John Huntsman has served with distinction and honor in, in that post, and uh, I, uh, I anticipate that you will, will do the same. Um, on October 21st, it was announced by Facebook that Russia continues to try and interfere in our election process by spreading false information and, and, and such, and Facebook took down a number of posts. So it's very clear that there's been no change on the part of Russia uh, in, in terms of their intent to interfere with our election process. Uh, what can we do to change their behavior in this regard? What options do we have? So far, the actions we've taken have been uh, incapable of dissuading them uh, from their malign activity. Uh, do you have thoughts about, about what actions uh, either you can take as an ambassador or we should consider as a foreign relations committee or as a nation to, to dissuade Russia uh, or any other nation, Iran, North Korea, and so forth, from, from, from trying to distort uh, our electoral process, which is, at, if you will, at the heart of how a democracy works. Our elections are essential to a democracy, re require the confidence of our people for democracy to work, that their votes are who have made, made the decisions that uh, will, uh, will elect our officials. What, what, what might we be able to do? Uh, it, what we have done, Senator, and by the way, I might, might say in, in my discussions with members of the committee about this, this is an ongoing campaign by the Russian government. We think of it in terms of election milestones, but they're really seeking to undermine the United States, our democracy, and who we are to divide us. We think of ele we look view it in terms of election milestones. They view it as an ongoing hybrid campaign against the United States, whom they view as a uh, an implacable adversary of theirs, and they are unfortunately become an adversary of ours. We've pursued sanctions. Uh, we have pursued uh, visa sanctions, economic sanctions, criminal prosecutions. Um, we've also- but, but those haven't dissuaded them. So what we've done most recently, uh, which I can't go into great detail about in, in an open setting like this, but involves our own tools, not only in defense of our election infrastructure and our basic uh, internet infrastructure, but more forward-leaning cyber methods, both in defending ourselves and our allies and partners, and taking actions against those who threaten us. Combining all of that with more direct messaging to the Russian Federation, to the Russian government from President Putin on down, that if they want to have a more stable relationship with the United States, which they profess to do, and I've, I was with Vice President Pence when he had this discussion with President Putin last year in November uh, at the East Asia Leaders Summit, uh, that if they desire that, if they're true to their word, they have to stop this, that this is a red line for us, and our sanctions and our actions in, uh, in response have to be directly coordinated to that message 
that is delivered to the Russians, that it's not just amorphous, malign activities, but it's this particular activity directed by, authorized by the senior leadership of the Russian government, carried out by non-state actors who were controlled by the Russian government that are directed at our country, our society, and our election infrastructure. Let me turn to a moment uh, to, to Russia's plans with regards to nuclearization. Uh, my understanding is that they have invested uh, as a nation dramatically in their nuclear arsenal, uh, modernizing it. They have also uh, uh, aggressively invested in intermediate range uh, uh, nuclear weapons in a way that has contravened our prior agreements. What is your sense of, of their ambition uh, relating to their nuclear weapons program? Uh, at a time when I think the rest of the world was hoping that we would reduce nuclear weapons, that we might have a, a new New START uh, a treaty that might actually re reduce from the current levels, uh, they seem to be investing more in nuclearization. Wh where are they headed and why? Uh, you, you've hit the nail on the head, uh, Senator. They are investing in weapon systems that they would view, strategic systems that they would view as not covered by New START. I believe that they need to be included in a discussion and I welcome a discussion with members of this committee in our discussions going forward with the Russians in advance of what would be the otherwise the lapsing of the New START Treaty on February 5th, 2021. Those at least five other weapon systems that we're aware of that President Putin publicized with that, that video that we're all familiar with uh, along with, relatedly, not just the weapon systems, the delivery systems, but a large number in a non development of, manufacture of, a large number of uh, lower yield nuclear uh, devices that could be included on those systems that wouldn't necessarily be deemed of a strategic level. When we discussed that, when I discussed this with my uh, Russian interlocutors in Geneva, uh, uh, this past summer, I made it clear to them that the people of the United States, it's not going to matter to the president or the people of the United States if we're hit by an ICBM that's covered by the New START Treaty or some hybrid weapon with a no yield, low yield nuclear weapon that destroys Denver or Salt Lake City. All those systems need to be addressed. And it's, uh, it, but that's their strategy is to comply with New START, and we've, we've determined that they have, but to build these other systems and a large number of, of uh, devices that uh, we don't really have a lot of transparency. We don't even know the number. We asked for the number of nuclear weapons that they had, nuclear devices, and they wouldn't even address the question. Thank you, Senator. Senator Carton. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Again, Secretary Sullivan, thank you very much. Uh, I, I appreciate your response in regards to Russia's interference in our elections, uh, using your words, a red line, which uh, I, I think it has to be absolutely clear that that's an attack on our country, on the very foundation of America. And of course, as I pointed out in your introduction, it's not unique to the United States by Russia's actions. They're doing it in many democratic countries around the world, and we must make it clear that that is a red line, that that cannot be tolerated. I also appreciate in your statement your willingness to meet with civil society uh, and for our embassy to be a beacon of hope for those that are oppressed. Earlier this month, Senator Rubio and I authored a, a letter joined by many of our colleagues 
uh, to Secretary Mnuchin and Pompeo uh, in regards to Russia's actions against uh, uh, human rights advocates and the imprisonment of, of opposition leaders and uh, urging the administration to be more aggressive in protecting those individuals, including the use of the Magnitsky sanctions. So I, I want to start, as I do with most ambassadors that are being uh, going through a nomination hearing in a country that has challenges on protecting human rights, as to how high of a priority will it be to promote American values as it relates to human rights, giving hope to the people of Russia that they do enjoy universal human rights that will be recognized by the United States and defended by the United States? Uh, it's a fundamental part, I would consider it a fundamental part of an American ambassador's mission to promote those values and to also point out the incongruity of the fact that the Russian constitution guarantees many rights, but the Russian government, it, their government is infringing those rights. And there are, uh, there are many ways that we can uh, encourage civil society in Russia. Um, I want to do, as I've, I've mentioned to some members of the committee, I want to make sure that I, I at first, at first as, the, uh, as, as I said in the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. In, uh, in embracing particular individuals and, and subjecting them to, uh, to retaliation by the Russian state for their association with us. But absolutely, uh, I absolutely affirm the importance of uh, promoting American values, basic human values that we all share, not just, uh, not just Americans, freedom of religion, um, and the fact that the consent of the governed, a republic, a democratic republic, is um, the highest form of government they're entitled to. So let me tell you the challenges that we've seen over many administrations. When there are high visible opportunities, summit meetings, rarely do we see human rights as a front center issue. Yes, we get into arms control. Yes, we get into counterterrorism. Yes, we get into the hot spots of the world trying to resolve the problems. But we see that human rights is rarely promoted to a top priority issue. I believe our mission in Russia can help make that more of a reality that these issues are showcased when we have those opportunities. Most recently, we've had horrible humanitarian disasters in different parts of the world. And as we look for resolutions of those issues, rarely do we hold those accountable for atrocities, accountable for their actions. If you're confirmed as an ambassador, will you be a champion for American values not being ignored as we deal with other very important issues? Arms control is an important issue. Counterterrorism is critically important but that we recognize that if we don't build those answers within American values, we're not doing a service to our country's national security. Uh, I, ha I have and will continue to do so, Senator, if I may offer a couple of examples uh, to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. I gave a speech on religious freedom in Khartoum a year and a half ago uh, in the face of threats against me. It was at a mosque in Khartoum, but the value of 
uh, religious freedom and how important it was for the Sudanese government, which has now changed. It was then under the presidency of President Bashir. But the importance of that government respecting its citizens' rights, including religious freedom. Um, I did the same thing in Nigeria with the night when I was in Abuja to speak with the uh, the uh, Nigerian president. Roughly the same uh, same time uh, last year. So we'll continue um, to do so. I appreciate that, and I also appreciate the fact that you responded to Senator Menendez's questions that you would follow the law on your conscience in regards to areas that could of potential conflict between uh, what many of us believe is, is, is the policies of this country and where there's conflict, uh, particularly with, with this administration. Uh, and, and I think that becomes important. We had a, an appropriation in, in fiscal year 17 budget to counter Russia's misinformation. And the administration was very slow in releasing those funds, very, very slow. We need to get the direct information from our missions as to the importance of those types of programs to counter Russia's propaganda and misinformation. We ultimately got the monies released, but it took a long time. So we want to make sure that our head of mission, our ambassador in Russia, will be giving direct information to us as to the needs and our values and if there's a conflict within, within the administration, we recognize the sensitivity of that and, and the importance of the ambassador to have the confidence of the president. But we need to be able to get that direct information consistent with law and your conscience. Yes, indeed, Senator. I, I agree. It's, uh, uh, as I said in my opening statement, I will look forward to working individually and collectively with this committee if, if I'm confirmed as, as our ambassador. <laughs> Uh, to Russia on that issue and, and any others that are of interest to a member or collectively the committee. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> and uh, Secretary Sullivan, as I told you in our meeting, I appreciate your willingness to serve um, in a new and uh, very important job that's going to be uh, uh, extremely difficult because you're going to be dealing with a relationship that's fraught with problems. You talked about some of those earlier today. You talked about their interference in our elections and how strongly we feel about their malign activities, uh, Russia's malign activities around the world, uh, the cyber attacks, uh, certainly what's going on in terms of disinformation, which I want to talk to you about in a second. Um, as you know, I spent a lot of time on the Ukraine issue. You mentioned Georgia, Ukraine. We didn't talk much about Syria, <clears throat> but even today as we sit here, uh, you know, there's the potential for U.S. forces and Russian forces to be in conflict for the first time in, in many years. So there's lots going on. Having served in uh, three administrations now, you've got the background and experience to be able to handle it, I believe. So I'm, I'm glad you're willing to do it. Um, I'm going to assume for the purposes of my questions that you'll get through this process as you have in the past and that... Um, as I've seen this morning, you know, you'll be able to answer the, the questions that are raised by, by my colleagues in a way that will ensure that you are confirmed. I think there are three areas where you can play a particularly significant role. One is with regard to disinformation. The Global Engagement Center, you have been a champion of. I appreciate that. Senator Murphy and I uh, passed legislation a few years ago that uh, we've been trying to ensure it ends up being implemented properly, including the funding. Senator Cardin just talked about that, you know, the DOD funding, which we finally got over to the State Department. Uh, this is not just focused on Russia, it's focused on 
disinformation more broadly, but frankly, Russia is the number one actor in this space. So let me ask you, um, from your perch uh, in Moscow, will you continue to be an advocate for the Global Engagement Center, and can you help us to ensure that we don't have these glitches, that we have the funding at a stable level so that we can bring the expertise in to be able to push back on disinformation globally? Uh, absolutely, Senator. In fact, we spoke at my, my confirmation hearing two and a half years ago, you may not remember this, but about the Global Engagement yeah. Center. Well, I remember it. You were, yes. uh, at that time, you made commitments that, that you kept, And I appreciate what, and, But what the challenge we've had with the GEC has been that it was when it was originally created, it was focused on counting non-state non actors, mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda, in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, shifting to in, in, continuing that mission, but adding state actors, specifically one as sophisticated as Russia, mm -hmm. has made the job even more difficult, but just as, if not more so, necessary. And I appreciate the, this committee's help in uh, seeking to get that funding, which has taken us far too long yep. to get. Uh, second, so thank you. And I, and I, I think you will have a uh, unique opportunity, given your position, I believe you're, you're, you're going to be confirmed for to be able to speak to that. Second is, is Ukraine. And as you and I have talked about, I've been there several times. I went there right after uh, the Revolution of Dignity and the Maidan, and since then, members of this committee have supported over $3 billion in additional aid to Ukraine, including now lethal defensive aid, which is necessary. And uh, uh, now a lot of Americans know about that as well, given what's happened in the last couple months. The point is, it's an extremely sensitive time in Ukraine. President Zelensky uh, has told me, and he has uh, taken some rather courageous political actions uh, to fulfill this, that he would like to see the conflict in the Donbass resolved. Uh, he specifically has talked about the Steinmeier formula, withdrawal of the Russian forces from the border areas, um, withdrawal of the Russian-backed surrogate forces there, in exchange for elections uh, in the East and in exchange for some level of autonomy. Uh, he's gotten a lot of pushback from that, as you know. But the point I'm making is I think you, having had your experiences at the State Department understanding this issue more broadly, have an interesting role to play, uh, which is to get Russia uh, to the table in a good faith effort, which I have not seen yet, uh, both with regard to Crimea, which we must never forget, and with regard to the eastern border. Um, I think there is an opportunity here with the new administration, uh, with his majority uh, in his parliament, the RADA, and with his determination to try to figure out a way forward. Uh, are you willing to take on that role, which would not be the typical role of an ambassador, uh, but I think in your case it would be one that could be crucial, again, to getting Russia to the table in a way that this issue could be resolved? Well, thank you, Senator. Russia is the key actor in this whole drama. The, the, we have the, the, uh, the situation we have in, uh, in the Donbass and in Crimea solely because of Russia's actions. I thought we saw a little shift in, uh, in the Russian position uh, a few months ago when they agreed to the, uh, the prisoner exchange to release the Kurtz Strait sailors, they, who had the Ukrainian sailors that they had illegally uh, attacked and seized. Uh, but I think there, there hasn't been the follow-through that we were hoping for. I would expect that the U.S. ambassador to Russia would be involved in particular in engaging with the Russian government in coordination with colleagues uh, at the Department of State and at the NSC on this extremely important issue. 
Yeah, again, uh, my, my time has expired. We'll continue this dialogue, but you will have the opportunity to play a central role in this because of your experience at the NSC and at the State Department and at the White House and the network you've developed and the respect you have here on the Hill. So I hope you will use that aggressively uh, to be able to resolve some of these issues, particularly uh, with regard to uh, the eastern border of Ukraine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Sullivan, for your willingness to take on this challenging position at this difficult time. In your opening statement, you talk about the need for principal engagement with Russia that requires sustained diplomacy and resolute opposition to Russia where it undermines the interest of the United States, the interest and values of the United States and our allies and partners. Do you believe that this is the philosophy with which the President approaches our policy towards Russia? He's nominated me to be his ambassador, uh, uh, Senator. I believe that is the, pre I would be fulfilling the President's desires with respect to Russia if I pursued that policy that I have laid out. Um, as you prepare to take on this engagement, can you explain whether or not you were briefed on President Trump's two-hour private meeting with President Putin in July of 2018? Uh, whether I was briefed after the meeting? Yes. Uh, I, or any time between then and now as you prepare to take oh, on. Oh, I just meant not before the meeting, but after the meeting, about Correct. the results of the meeting. Um, yeah, I've been in brief by the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor to the President, and the three, uh, two principal items that I was charged with coming out of that meeting were the two dialogues that I now lead on counterterrorism and our strategic security talks with, uh, with the Russians. There was a third request from, uh, from President Putin concerning uh, a business-to-business -business dialogue, which has yet to be uh, implemented. It really wouldn't involve substantial involvement by, by the United States government. But those were the three issues that I was briefed on coming out of the President's meeting with President Putin uh, last year. And did you ever see the actual notes from that meeting, or that was a verbal briefing from Those Secretary were, Pompeo? Uh, well, they, uh, and, and Ambassador Bolton, there, uh, I, I didn't see a verbatim memorandum reciting what exactly was the back and forth between the two presidents in the meeting, but um, I, I hesitate to say it was only orally. There may also be memos uh, that discuss these priorities for the dialogues that I described. But I didn't see a memo that summarized the results of the conversations between the two presidents. I was briefed on the outcomes that I should be looking to implement. And that briefing may have been in writing as well as orally. I can't recall at this point. A large number of Russian ISIS fighters are being held in prisons guarded by the SDF in northeast Syria. Um, of course, many more remain at large. And Russian terrorism analysts say that Russia, in many ways, has exported his, its own domestic terrorism problem to Syria. Do you agree with that assessment? And given Russia's increasingly prominent role in northeast Syria following our withdrawal, are you aware of any of United States' efforts to push Russia to address the global ISIS problem and to, to take back its own ISIS fighters who have immigrated to Syria? 
yes, in fact, that's a major topic of our discussion in the counterterrorism dialogue. We've had two meetings at the deputy minister, deputy secretary level, and then a number of other meetings um, at lower levels involving FBI, CIA, et cetera. Um, the Russian government has, with respect to the foreign terrorist fighters in northeast Syria, has agreed with us that countries who have their citizens who are detained, who've been, who left their homeland, went to northeast Syria or elsewhere, but are now detained in northeast Syria, that they should be taking those citizens back to their home countries to be prosecuted and, and dealt with, and have including actually, Russia. Has Russia actually done that? They have, in fact, in fairly large numbers. In fact, we have the opposite concern, frankly, Senator, which is our concern about how people are going to be treated when they get sent back to Russia. So from my perspective and my discussions with the Russians, they are, in fact, in aggressive agreement with us on wanting their people back and putting pressure on other countries, particularly European countries, to take theirs. My concern is what happens to those people, and particularly family members of those fighters who get sent back to Russia, which is one of the limitations on our counterterrorism dialogue. Right. There are limits in what we can, how we, you know, we can work with them because of their behavior. And were you aware that um, Rudy Giuliani had opened a second channel of diplomacy if you want to call it that, a ch second channel of effort in Ukraine? <coughs> as, I, as I said in, in response to questions from, from Senator Menendez, I was aware that, uh, that Mr. Giuliani was, uh, was involved in Ukraine issues. My knowledge, um, at, at particularly in, in April, May, June timeframe, even into July, was focused on his... Um, his and his campaign basically against our ambassador to Ukraine. And is that the normal way the State Department does business to open a second channel? Uh, well, I, I will say that country? Um, there, there, there are examples going back through history of presidents using um, people outside of U.S. citizens outside of the government in whom they repose trust to uh, convey messages and represent them uh, abroad. Uh, so it's not, in my experience, unprecedented. Um, so uh, I, I don't know whether I say more, more than that. It was, it, it, and it's also the president's prerogative, even within the US government, if they're, for example, sending Secretary Perry to Ukraine uh, to discuss energy issues, for example, even though he's going on a foreign mission to a foreign country, he's not the Secretary of State. Um, that is something the presidents typically typically do. But but you assume, and my time is up, so I, I will stop. But I think we normally assume that everybody is pursuing the same policies when we have different channels of communication to a country. Thank you. May may I respond to you? You may. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, that's a problem when uh, there are multiple parties involved, and it's a challenge, I think, for any Secretary of State to maintain control over U.S. foreign policy 
uh, in any government when there are, uh, even within the US government, if there are other cabinet secretaries, I know from my experience in, in the Bush 43 administration, great disagreements between the Department of Defense and the Department of State on what were essentially foreign policy issues. So it's a challenge for the Secretary of State to maintain control over that, uh, that policy in, in any administration. Thank you, Senator Young. Secretary Sullivan, hello, and welcome to the committee, and, and congratulations on your nomination. Um, I found you to be accessible and highly competent, and uh, you've comported yourself with uh, great integrity thus far in, in, in public life, so um, I'm, I'm disposed to uh, support your, uh, your confirmation. I have a question about uh, a series of questions related to arms control, which you've identified in your testimony Moni is as uh, an area of uh, sort of shared concern, uh, shared interest between the United States and, and Russia. And I do think it's important as, as many challenges, as many disagreements as we have, if we can find some areas of commonality, uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, so um, you, earlier you affirmed that you believe it's in the best interest of the United States to pursue an extension of New START. You further indicated, I, I think, that Russian strategy is indeed to comply with New START, but all the while to build other weapon systems and uh, also develop lower yield nuclear weapons. In conjunction with pursuing a, a, a New START extension, are, are there particular updates or conditions that you believe are necessary to ensure New START is as potent and enforceable as possible? Uh, yes, and what I'd say is my, what I think our, our position, the United States position should be, would not to be an, to announce the extension of New START today, it expires on February 5th, 2021, but to engage immediately with the Russians on not just the terms of an extension, but these other weapon systems that I discussed with Senator Romley, the five that I think you and I talked about when we met earlier. So, so what role <coughs> would you play as ambassador in, in those conversations and in ensuring we land in the right spot? Well, my expectation is if I am uh, the chief of mission in Moscow that I would be consulted and be a, uh, a, a, a conduit to the Russian government uh, in both directions. But my expectation is if we were to proceed with substantial arms control negotiations, that that would be a major undertaking requiring a large bandwidth from, uh, of resources from the US government across the interagency, from the Joint Staff, DOD, NSC, the intelligence community. My expectation is that as ambassador, I would not be as directly involved as those negotiations uh, okay. proceeded. Yeah, that's fair. Um, let me move to the plumbing, right? I, one of the most important roles uh, of an ambassador is, is to make sure that uh, the trains run on time, that personnel have what they need, uh, our very competent diplomatic personnel, and, and, and so forth. And, and so you're gonna need full embassy staffing and a functioning network of consulates throughout the country in order to be able to 
you know, uh, most effectively carry out your mission. In April of 2018, as, as you and I discussed in my office, Russia expelled 60 of our diplomats and closed our consulate in St. Petersburg. So what actions uh, will you take, Mr. Secretary, uh, to get our embassy staffing numbers back to where they need and to reopen that St. Petersburg uh, consulate uh, so that it can serve Americans, uh, citizens who are uh, visiting from abroad? Well, we have an ongoing discussion with the Russian, with the Russian foreign ministry on, uh, on these issues. And uh, it's gotten to the point where we were, our staffing level was cut to 455 U.S. direct hires. In fact, because the dispute we have with Russia extends beyond just the initial expulsion of 60, but their refusal to give visas for us to be able to backfill, we're substantially below 400 people at this point in our mission. So I think the problem is even greater than you described yes. it. It's very yes. acute. And that is tr that's become clear to me over my two and a half years as our, our mission has shrunk. We lost the consulate in St. Petersburg. The price for the, the consulate in St. Petersburg, we closed the Russian consulate in San Francisco. Uh, and we don't have plans to allow them to reopen that consulate, which was used for other than diplomatic purposes. Uh, but not having a consulate in St. Petersburg, we have many, for purposes of providing American citizen services out of our embassy, we have so many Americans who visit cruise ships that make port calls. It's essential that we have a consulate there, and we're hand handicapped by having to work out of Moscow to service people there. So I think it's important, too. So, uh, you know, to the extent that I and other members of the committee can be helpful on that front, uh, we, of course, want to. I am going to submit for the record a, a series of, of, of questions. I'm going to very quickly publicly say them, and my, uh, I would appreciate it if you could respond to them later. Simple yes or no answers. Uh, I think it's really important that we sort of protect the prerogatives of this committee and of this Article I branch. So um, here they are. Um, have you adhered to applicable laws and governing conflicts of interest? Have you assumed any duties or any actions that would appear to presume the outcome of this confirmation process? Do you agree, if confirmed, to appear and to testify before this committee when requested by the chairman and ranking member? Do you agree to provide documents and electronic communication in a timely manner when requested by this committee, its subcommittees, or other appropriate committees of Congress and to the requester? Will you ensure that you and your staff complies with deadlines established by this committee for the production of reports, records, and other documents? including responding timely to hearing questions for record. We cooperate in providing witnesses and briefers in response to congressional requests. And finally, will those briefers be protected from reprisal for their briefings? I don't anticipate any challenges whatsoever, but uh, I'll submit this uh, for the record. And Thank you, Senator. Response. Thank those, you so much. Those questions will be submitted. Thank you. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, uh, Deputy Sullivan. Uh, thank you so much for your strong public service. Have you reviewed the memorandum of telephone conversation of the July 25 phone call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky that the White House made public last month? I have. Uh, I'd like to introduce it into the record, Mr. Chair. Yeah, be introduced. The memorandum states that it's not a verbatim transcript and the presence of several ellipses and the memorandum suggests that some material was deleted. Have you read a full transcript of that conversation? The only version of that memorandum that I saw, Senator, was one that I got via public media. Okay. Have you asked to read any 
fuller version other than the one that you've read? I have not. Do you know whether any member of the State Department was invited to participate in that call? Uh, I, I believe the Secretary has said that he did. I don't know if others, my expectation is not, but I don't, okay. I don't know that. Okay. President Trump uh, initiated a discussion about former Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch on the call saying the former ambassador from the United States, the woman, was bad news. Do you believe that this dedicated career foreign service officer was bad news? As I said earlier, uh, Senator, as an ambassador Yovanovitch, in her written statement to the House impeachment inquiry, I told her that I had no reason to believe at the time that she, there, she had done anything to be. Do, do, and do you? And I think you've testified this already, but do you know what the president meant by the statement? She's been. She's bad news. I I don't know. He later said in the call, "Well, she's going to go through some things." Do you have any idea what the president meant by that comment? I don't. Um, she testified before the House that you told her that she was relieved of her post because she lost the president's confidence, but that she'd done nothing wrong and that she had been the subject of a concerted campaign against her. Is that accurate? Is that accurate in terms of what you told her? Yes, it is. I was intrigued by who was mentioned on the diplomatic call and who wasn't. The memorandum mentions Rudy Giuliani six times, Attorney General Barr five times, Ambassador Yovanovitch three times, Vice President Biden two times, Vice President Biden's son one time, and Robert Mueller one time. The transcript does not mention Secretary Pompeo, Ambassador Taylor, or anyone at the State Department other than the disparaging comments about Marie Yovanovitch. And the President repeatedly urges President Zelensky to work with Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr. Does it, does it surprise you that on a diplomatic call, the President would encourage Ukraine to communicate with Rudy Giuliani and AG Barr, but not Secretary Pompeo or Ambassador Taylor or the State Department? Well, I think in the context of those references, Senator, it was to our anti-corruption efforts, uh, which have been long-standing, going back to the prior administration. So it, it doesn't does, does, Doesn't the State Department work on some of those things? Absolutely, as, as do other cabinet. But, but, but we're not mentioned. President Zelensky raises the issue of defense cooperation and expresses interest in purchasing Javelin missiles. We now know that the White House was thwarting the command of Congress by withholding military support from Ukraine. When did you become aware of that? Of that? Of, uh, the, thwart of the thwarting of the uh, military aid to Ukraine? I was aware that there was a hold on security assistance to Ukraine. I wasn't aware of the reason. Okay. In response to the request for military support during the phone call, President Trump does not encourage President Zelensky to reach out to the Secretary of Defense the UCOM commander, or Ambassador Taylor. He just encourages Ukraine to communicate with Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr. Does it surprise you that on matters of defense cooperation, the President would encourage Ukraine to work, uh, communicate with Rudy Giuliani and AG Barr, but not the Department of Defense or our ambassador? Well, as I, as I said in response to your question regarding the Secretary of State, my understanding was in reading that transcript, the, the President's focus was on anti-corruption efforts, which is why he would have referred to the Attorney General. But President Zelensky was asking about defense aid, and President Trump was engaging in that conversation, but not encouraging communication with the Department of Defense. President Zelensky also raised the issue of trade with the United States and talked specifically about cooperation on energy-related issues. We now know that the White House directed Trade Representative Lighthizer in August to shelve all trade discussions with, with Ukraine. In response to the discussion about trade and energy, President Trump does not encourage President Zelensky to reach out to Secretary Ross, Secretary Perry, Trade Representative Lighthizer, or Ambassador Taylor. He just encourages the President to communicate with Attorney General Barr and Rudy Giuliani. Does, it, does that surprise you on a matter of trade and energy? 
Again, I'd have the same answer que okay. uh, that, my, that I believe the, pre the president's overriding focus was on it. Well, for the record, we all know that Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr are not responsible for U.S. policies on commerce, trade, energy, defense, or diplomacy. As far as you know, are there other countries where the president is directly encouraging the head of state to work with Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr rather than the State Department, the Defense Department, the Commerce Department, the Energy Department, the Trade Representative, or our own U.S. Ambassador? I'm not aware of any other country with let, respect to Mr. Giuliani. Let me ask you one other question. I, if, if, uh, he wanted to finish. Yeah, I just okay. want to say, yeah. with respect to Attorney General Barr, I, I, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if, given the role of the Justice Department, it, it may be. But I'm not aware of any, uh, any other instance with, uh, with respect to Mr. Giuliani. Lastly, the president's calendar reveals that he held a phone conversation with Vladimir Putin uh, six days after the call with President Zelensky. Um, do you know whether the president told President Putin that the U.S. was withholding military aid from Ukraine, stopping trade discussions with Ukraine, or that the U.S. was about to cut $800 million in NATO-related military construction projects in Europe during that call? I, I'm do not believe that that was mentioned in the call with President so, Putin. So you've seen a transcript of it? No, I, no, I have not, but I, I've not been told that that was, that was the so subject of the you're, you're unaware, but have I, not been told. My recollection is that that call with, that there was a, a, a massive wildfire. The summary of the call says it's about wildfires yes, and trade. That's what it doesn't I give any additional details. That's what I'm aware of. You've not seen a transcript of, of the right. call. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Thank you for being here today, and uh, thank you for your service to our country, which I think is across four cabinet departments, three administrations, last two years as the deputy, and all of six weeks as the acting secretary of state. So, and now you're going to, to Russia, as I told you yesterday. Um, I don't know what you're going to do to top that, but, um, but that's, a, that's a great record of service to our country. Because you're the nominee to such an important post, I think we're just going to cut to the chase, we all understand the theory and, and the argument made that the President of the United States was engaged in an effort to leverage U.S. foreign aid to a country in exchange for that country helping him uh, go after the, uh, a political opponent. Uh, that, that is the allegation. That's what the House is looking into. Bottom line, were you aware at any time or did any, in, uh, until, of course, the stuff is broken in the press, but before that time, did anyone ever come to you? Were you ever aware of that sort of uh, connection, that quid pro quo is being alleged? Was that something that you were a part of? Um, just for the record, I think that's important. I, I was not, Senator. You were not aware? I was not aware. You've never heard anyone tell you there's, if they'll get the money, if they investigate a political opponent? Not until the, uh, the recent developments and disclosures from the whistleblower's complaint. Which, that's the first time you're aware of it, okay? J just as another matter, because of your record, listen, I, I think you can be, as I am, deeply concerned that we would remove a ambassador from a post as a result of what now appears to be at least a somewhat foreign-directed effort, a concerted effort, to spread misinformation about that U.S. ambassador. I would imagine it's, it's, it's wrong, it's bad for morale, it, it would encourage adversaries to do the same. But there is, just to be clear, I'm not justifying it, I'm not saying it's right, I have no concerns about it, but there is nothing illegal about an ambassador being removed from their post. In essence, neither you, if you're confirmed, nor any other ambassador serving this country has, is entitled to serve in that role 
until there's cause. Uh, ambassadors are reassigned and can be reassigned all the time. We may not agree with it, we may think it's unfair, we may think it's unwise, but you and anybody else serving in a post overseas could be reassigned or asked to be reassigned at any moment. For, for any or no reason, the president's authority, as I understand it, he may decide that he doesn't like my testimony today and doesn't want me to go to Russia. The president can decide when he loses confidence in his ambassador or his nominee that that person is not going to continue as ambassador. What he can't do is he can't decide that if it's a career, a career employee that that person is removed from the Foreign Service, and that is not what happened with respect to Yovanovitch. Right, that was my last question. And, and, and Ambassador Yovanovitch was not removed. There was no effort to remove her from the Foreign Service. In fact, the opposite to one of the, uh, one part of my conversation with the ambassador was uh, her desire, my hope and her desire to continue to serve in the Foreign Service and what her onward assignment would be. All right, the, the last topic here in the two minutes that are left, uh, it's an interesting thing that's developing here between Russia and China. If we go back 40, 50 years, you know, Russia was the senior partner in that uh, relationship when they weren't in conflict. Uh, China was still a, a developing country. Now the roles have been reversed. We see China growing in geopolitical influence. Their economy continues to grow. Russia, on the other hand, is in decline demographically, economically, to some respects, militarily in comparison to the Chinese. Um, I think it's now fair to say that, that Russia is the junior partner in that relationship between China and Russia. And, and I'm curious about your views about how do we ha what's our role in managing how that plays out, for example, in Central Asia, where Russia's, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, frankly, is no match uh, for China's offers with its Belt and Road Initiative. So you've got a, a country that's in decline relative to China. They may feel threatened by this if they don't already at some point. What's our role in that? How do we manage that? And what's our role in Central Asia as, as these two countries potentially have that tug of war? Well, as, as we discussed yesterday, Senator, those five countries are extremely important uh, geopolitically, their location. Uh, for any number of reasons, um, our counterterrorism mission, for example, resolving the conflict in Afghanistan on terms favorable to the United States. Um, I believe there is uh, competition between Russia and China in that area. We want to be involved. I met with the five foreign ministers from those countries. Uh, this would have been last year before a UN Security Council session on Afghanistan where they participated. Uh, I met with them to discuss our interests, their interests in some of those countries at least, being closer to the United States as they feel squeezed between Russia and China. So it's geostrategically important, as you noted, and we do have a role to play. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Secretary, um, Gordon Sunland came before this committee as you are today so that we could consider his nomination to be the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, uh, which um, <clears throat> no longer includes the Ukraine. Uh, according, to, um, uh, according to statements by multiple government officials, including Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, uh, a Purple Heart recipient and Ukraine expert assigned to the National Security uh, Council, uh, as well as other diplomats, Sunland was involved in efforts to get Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky to investigate President Trump's political rival rather than to pursue the national security interest of the United States. 
In fact, Ambassador Sondland is reported to have determined that, quote, Ukrainian leaders deliver, quote, a specific investigations to secure a meeting between President Zelensky and President Trump. In response to Senator Menendez, you stated that it would not be in accord with our values for a president to solicit a foreign investigation into a political rival. Um, have you ever heard of any other president ever asking a foreign government to investigate an American citizen? Uh, I, I can't think of one off the top of my, my head, Senator, but uh, I, as I've said to, in response to Senator Kane's questions, the president and the United States government has been focused on any corruption uh, efforts extensively in, in Ukraine. So, so in your opinion, I'd like to hear it, uh, having President Trump ask Ukraine to investigate a U.S. citizen, his political rival, would be unprecedented in American history and certainly the American presidency? I'm, I'm not, I, I don't consider myself competent to answer the historical- To your knowledge? To my knowledge, I'm, I'm not aware of that, but uh, I'm not, which is not to say it hasn't happened. Um, as ambassador to, the, um, to Russia, would you ever put any individual's political interests ahead of the foreign policy and national security uh, interests of this country, even the political interests of the President of the United States? even if requested by the President of the United States? I would only implement the President's foreign policy in the national security interests of the United States. So you would never compromise America if the political interests of the President ran contrary to our... My oath would be, as my current oath is in my, current, in my present position, to, to the United States and our Constitution. I have received information that before John Bolton resigned, President Trump may have made a decision to exit the Open Skies Treaty, which permits signatories to conduct shot notice unarmed reconnaissance flights over, uh, over the um, uh, entire territories of, <coughs> of, um, uh, to collect data on military forces and nuclear weapons activities. We then share this information with our allies and all signatories to the treaty. Do you believe that withdrawing from the Open Skies Treaty is in the interest of the United States? To my knowledge, the United States has not withdrawn from the Open Skies Treaty. In fact, the United States this month is chairing the Open Skies Consultative Commission. There was the 1500th Open Skies Treaty flight. Do you believe that withdrawing from the Open Skies Treaty is in the in best interest of the United States? Uh, there would need to be substantial evidence to support the national security interest for withdrawal from that treaty, and there would need to be consultations with this committee, with Congress, and in particular with our, uh, our NATO allies and the other countries that are members of the treaty before, as we did when we withdrew from the INF treaty. Have, have you made a decision to withdraw, to exit from the Open Skies Treaty yourself? I have not. You have not. Um, and I just, for the record, Secretary of State uh, George Schultz, Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, Sam Nunn, all strongly support continued U.S. participation. Has the White House consulted the State Department about potential withdrawal from the Open Skies Agreement? Uh, I have been consulted because I heard those same rumors, Senator. You have been consulted? Uh, well, I, I inquired as to whether we had withdrawn from the treaty and was assured we had not. Uh, have you been, you have been involved in discussions, given your leading role in strategic I have, security? and I've consulted with our ambassadors to, to NATO and the OSCE and heard their views and conveyed those views about uh, their view that we should continue to be, uh, be members of the, uh, the treaty. And our ambassador, the OSCE, Ambassador Gilmore, 
is the chair, as I said this month, of the Consultative Commission on Open Skies. You've consulted with allies who benefit tremendously from this agreement? What, and what is their view, our allies? We have not, to you my knowledge. You have not? No. Have you consulted with Congress on the withdrawal? Other than conversations in connection with my nomination, no. Yeah. Uh, is, the, uh, is the United States and Russia still in compliance with the treaty? Uh, the United States is in compliance. There's, uh, the United States' view is that the Russians have not been in compliance in certain respects, including overflights over Kaliningrad. Uh, but we, are, we and the Russians and all the signatories of the, uh, the treaty continue to be members. And as, I, as I've said twice before, we are chairing the commission that oversees the treaty uh, this month, Ambassador Gilmore is. Do you think this transparency, which um, the treaty uh, uh, creates, is in our national interest, and that we should resolve the ambiguities rather than withdrawing completely it, from it? Ha it has been in our interest, and to the extent that it's not, we need to be transparent about why, as we were when we withdrew from the INF treaty. Yeah. I think it's in our best national security interest that we remain in the Open Skies Treaty. It's helped us a lot, and our allies have been tremendously benefited from it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Marks. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations. Good to visit with you again. I know you've had a lengthy discussion about Russia's new strategic nuclear weapons. I wanted to just go back a bit to the, the, the New START Treaty, which I always believe was a one-sided agreement. I voted against it, have major uh, concerns about it, and it, to me it was more about reducing the United States strategic nuclear forces, but not Russians' forces, because the, that treaty required the United States and Russia to reduce our deployed nuclear warheads to numbers that Russia was already below those numbers. I thought it was one-sided, unfair, and that we made significant reductions to get below uh, the limit. So in future arms control negotiations with Russia, are you committed to ensuring that the United States isn't entering into a one-sided arms control agreement where, where we are a party uh, required to make actually make more reductions when Russia is not? Uh, absolutely, Senator. The United States should only enter into any treaty, particularly an arms control treaty, that is in the interests, national interests and security interests of the United States. Russia, to me, it continues to use economic instruments and propaganda to achieve its objectives and exert influence in Europe. And we see this as we travel in Europe, visit with our, with our NATO allies. They try to influence and exert control over countries through a variety of means, uh, military intimidation, energy dependence, cyber attacks, trade. Uh, would you speak to what you see as Putin's ultimate objective? Uh, well, particularly with respect to Europe, fracturing Europe, particularly uh, Eastern Europe from Western Europe. I've spent a lot of time traveling in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, which is really a laboratory for Russian hybrid warfare, whether it's cyber, disinformation, intimidation, etc. It's, uh, it's more significant in Ukraine, where there's actually uh, violence being done on a daily basis, not only in Donbass, but it's not really well known, but there are... Uh, there are assassinations in Ukraine that are uh, that are carried out. It is a hot war. That's there have been thirteen thousand people that have been killed in uh, in in Ukraine in the Donbass uh, over the last five years. So uh, that's not just hybrid warfare. That's real warfare. So, what are the most effective tools and leverage points that uh, we could use in trying to change Russian behavior? Well, we've, we've talked about some of those today, Senator, sanctions, visa, and economic sanctions. Uh, and also, 
um, we, have, we have worked hard with our, uh, our allies and partners, particularly in Eastern Europe, to harden them and their infrastructure, particularly cyber infrastructure, against intrusions, forward deployment of, uh, of US assets, uh, and by that I mean cyber. Uh, as well, I think that's very important for us to support because they are under stress every day, particularly under cyber threats from uh, from Russia. One of the things that we discussed when you came to my office was the issue of uh, Europe's reliance on Russian energy and Russia's effort to addict Europe uh, to to their energy sources. The uh, you know, Europe is trying to work on a number of initiatives to counter this, this influence. The European Union members, at least, have identified the risks associated with it, although Germany is moving ahead with the, uh, with the pipeline to Nord Stream 2. Uh, it, we look at uh, some things that are, people are trying to do to avoid this dependence. Lithuania, as we discussed, created that floating LNG terminal called the Independence. Uh, efforts to increase interconnections, reverse flow cap capacities of European pipelines. You know, you, you can see what they're trying to do uh, running uh, up and down in Montenegro and, and, and that uh, Croatia and that area. So despite these efforts, it does seem clear that more needs to be done, especially in light of, of Russia's efforts to build Nord Stream 2. So as, as we look at their steps our allies and partners in Europe can take to promote energy security, uh, what, what efforts do you think need to be the top priorities here? Well, the top priority that we have had uh, has been opposition to Nord Stream 2. But to address your particular question, Senator, it reminds me of my conversation with Senator Markey about Ukrainian dependence on, uh, on Russian gas. Uh, and you refer to it as an addiction, and Senator Markey used the same term. It is. It's creation of dependency to control. And now, having made Ukraine dependent, building that second, completing that second pipeline is going to provide a huge lever. And among the issues that we can use with the Ukrainians is increasing energy efficiency, uh, other sources of, uh, of, uh, of energy, whether it's LNG, or stopping Nord Stream 2 so that gas will continue to flow through Ukraine. Thank you, thank you Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good to see you uh, again. Uh, Ambassador Sullivan, thank you very much for your service to the country. Um, you've been asked, uh, I think, a version of this question in a couple different ways, but let me ask it specific to uh, the events that we now know took place over the course of the summer and fall. Um, we've learned now with some certainty, as you've testified, that employees of the State Department, people under your supervision, specifically Kurt Volker, Gordon Sondland, and Bill Taylor, were pressing the Ukrainian government to open specific investigations uh, into topics connected to the Biden family and uh, alternative theories about uh, who interfered in the 2016 elections. Knowing what you know now about what was happening and those specific requests that were being made, do you think the actions of those individuals were proper? Uh, what they were doing back then, was it proper? Um, I, I don't, I'd have to think about that. I don't think that, as I've testified previously, um, if the, the concept of investigating a political rival as opposed to encouraging anti-corruption reform, which is a legitimate, I think, and consistent with our values, that 
that would be inconsistent with our values. And so in this case, they were specifically requesting investigations connected to a political rival of the President of the United States. And so your testimony is that, uh, that those requests were improper. To the extent that they were made, I'm going to have to assume that, that what I read in the paper, I mean, I don't, I'm not present at the depositions, but what has been reported in the press, I've said as a, as a general matter in response to one of the first questions from Senator Menendez that investigation of a political, asking a foreign government to investigate a domestic political rival as opposed to as part an anti, a larger anti-corruption campaign, which we'd been engaged in encouraging the Ukrainians for years, those are two different things. And, and do you have any reason to believe that that the reports in the press and the testimony of Ambassador Taylor are wrong? I, I don't. I don't, also don't know that they're accurate. I, I just I don't know one way. I will accept for purposes, that hypothetically, if they are, I've, I'll answer the question. That, I just don't know personally. Um, these, as I mentioned, were individuals acting under the auspices of the State Department. Um, and so um, I, I think it's important for the committee to understand where their authority came from. Um, we talked a little bit about this in our private meeting. Um, did you order uh, Volker, Sondland, and Taylor to coordinate with Rudy Giuliani in pressing the Ukrainians for these investigations uh, into Burisma or uh, the origins of the 2016 interference? I did not. Um, did Secretary Pompeo order these individuals to request these investigations? Not to my knowledge. Um, did John Bolton order these individuals to coordinate with Rudy Giuliani in pressing for these investigations? I don't have a basis to answer. I don't believe so, but I, I don't know that he did. I have no reason to think that he did. I just, I don't, I don't have a factual basis to provide a definitive answer. But clearly, if these are people uh, under your supervision, you didn't ask them to undertake these activities, um, I would imagine you would want to get to the bottom of that. Um, and so what is your understanding as to where their instructions were coming from if they weren't coming from you or the Secretary of State? Well, uh, they're getting their instructions. Ambassador, uh, our charge, Ambassador Taylor in Kiev, is getting instructions from the Secretary, from me, and for our Undersecretary for... Right, but on this case, you testified that neither you nor the Secretary asked them to uh, request these specific investigations. And so oh. where did those instructions come I, from? I don't know. And did, have you made any attempt to find out? Since I learned of it in September, I have not. I, I think that's curious if people under, operating um, outside of your specific instructions, um, I think it's curious that you would not try to find out. Let me just ask a few more quick questions. Is it currently the policy of the United States that Ukraine must conduct investigations into Burisma and CrowdStrike? No. Why not? If it uh, was, this was the policy over the summer, so why is it not the policy I had, now? I had accepted as a hypothetical that that was our policy. I don't know that. It is not our policy. Our policy has been to encourage any corruption reform generally in Ukraine. That's something that I've worked on for over two years, uh, but never with respect to a particular investigation or company or individual. Is Rudy Giuliani currently carrying out any diplomatic business on behalf of the United States? Not to my knowledge. So, um, uh, Mr. Shovel, I have a great deal of respect for uh, the work that you have done. You've toiled under difficult circumstances, and I'm uh, frankly pleased that you're willing to take on this difficult assignment. But your um, testimony as to your uh, 
lack of, uh, of, of interest in asking questions uh, about why people under your control were being given direction uh, that did not come from you or the secretary and your um, lack of uh, attempts to delve into what the policy actually was during this period of time. You're accepting hypotheticals, but you don't seem to have an opinion as to whether it actually was the policy of the United States, which by the testimony that the House has received, it clearly was, to encourage these investigations, um, I, I do think is concerning. But uh, again, I appreciate the service you've given the country and uh, appreciate uh, your testimony today. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sullivan. I, I think uh, uh, my friends on the other side and your discussion have kind of uh, sharpened the question that, this, uh, that the jury in the Senate is going to have to answer, and uh, that is having to do with the corruption uh, in the Ukraine. Well, you would agree with me that this corruption in Ukraine has been going on since uh, since they left the Soviet Union and has been of great concern to virtually every administration, uh, Republican, Democrat, over that period of time. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. The fact that it's been so longstanding and ingrained is what it makes it so difficult to change and eradicate now. And, and would you also agree with me that every time we discuss this, when I say we, I mean all of us that talk about the Ukraine, it's almost impossible to talk about conditions there without talking about the corruption in the country. Uh, for, for, over the many administrations they've had in the Ukraine since they got out from under the Soviet Union. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it infects the entire society. And, uh, and, and having said that, the, uh, the gas company has been right at the heart of that uh, corruption in the Ukraine, has it not? Well, gas is so central to the, uh, the Ukrainian economy that, uh, of course. Yeah. So, so now we get a situation where uh, people have taken this transcript and argued that uh, the president was uh, having them investigate a uh, political rival uh, regarding corruption that took place in Ukraine. And I think you said, and I think everyone has said and agrees, that if it was a strictly uh, a political rival to be investigated, that that would be wrong. What happens if the, if, uh, the political rival is somehow involved in uh, corruption in the Ukraine? That becomes a lot dicier question, does it not, whether a president has to look the other way if indeed a political rival is involved in I corruption? I would say so. Yeah. Going uh, to be a question we're all going to uh, deal with at some time in the not-too-distant future, I think. In any event, uh, th thank you for, uh, for that. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Benitez, for holding uh, today's hearing, and Mr. Deputy Secretary, for your uh, distinguished service um, over many different positions across several administrations. Um, I, I greatly appreciate your recognition, both in your public testimony uh, and in our uh, private meeting, the critical work that Foreign Service and Civil Service officers do every, every day, and their, uh, their determination, their dedication to forwarding foreign policy goals in the national interests of our country, uh, aside from our, our partisan politics. Um, nowhere are those goals and interests uh, more important uh, than in our work in Russia. Uh, Russia, as you agree, um, attacked and undermined our elections in 2016 and continues its influence campaign efforts to meddle in democratic processes, not just in the United States, not just in the United States and Europe. There's actually an article in the New York Times today about how Russia has launched influence campaigns across Africa uh, in a new playbook that features outsourcing and franchising their uh, influence campaigns. So we all need uh, a comprehensive and sustained strategy to blunt that. And uh, it is my hope you will get the chance to carry out your commitments to push back forcefully on this malign activity by Russia. Uh, let me just follow up on uh, a question that you got asked before. Senator Kane uh, asked you, uh, this is in the context of Ukraine and corruption that's been at the center of so many questions today. 
Senator Kane asked you why President Trump kept referring uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky to discuss all issues with Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr. And you said President Trump was focused on anti-corruption. If anti-corruption in Ukraine is such a priority for the president in this administration, um, I'm struck as, as an appropriator um, that my understanding of this record uh, in the subcommittee that funds the International Narcotics Control and Law Enforcement budget, that in 2019 the administration requested a cut in funding to $13 million. Congress rejected that and restored funding to $30 million. In 2020, the administration again sought to cut that funding to 13 million. Congress, I think, is likely to once again restore it to 30 million. If this is a great priority, combating corruption in Ukraine for the administration, why does the president's budget not reflect that in any of the three budgets he submitted? Excuse me. I think, Senator, the, the prime obstacle to any corruption reform in Ukraine is not technical or monetary support by the United States, but the will of the Ukrainian government uh, to rein in Ukrainian oligarchs and reform their system. We saw this over two years in urging President Poroshenko to engage in anti-corruption reform, and the will was simply not there. Uh, and I think that's the biggest obstacle to anti-corruption reform. But can we use that extra money and do an even better job on behalf of the United States? Absolutely. Will we be wasting that money if there isn't any corruption, a will to engage in anti-corruption reform by Ukrainian leadership? I'm afraid that's also true. I mean, I, I'll just politely disagree with you, if I might, that I think that funding um, is critical for the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and uh, the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office and for restoring uh, some semblance of rule of law in a country where corruption is widespread. Let me move to one other issue before my time runs out. Um, human rights, I'm the co-chair of the Human Rights Caucus here in the Senate. There are hundreds of political prisoners in Russia. Um, Memorial Human Rights Center, a prominent Russian human rights organization, says the number of political prisoners has increased fivefold in the last four years. If confirmed, what will you do to draw attention to Russia's political prisoners and push for their release? I'd point out, in fact, that I believe the rate at which the Russian government is incarcerating political prisoners is increasing, not decreasing. Yeah. Uh, shining light and trans uh, being transparent about what actually is going on and being public about it, I think, is the first, first step. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, urging the Russian government to abide by its own laws and treat its people right. The Senate uh, unanimously passed earlier this year, um, Senate Resolution 81, uh, which I supported and helped draft, that condemns President Putin for targeting political opponents and working to cover up um, some of their actions, in particular the assassination of uh, opposition leader Boris Nemtsov. Uh, and that resolution from the Senate urges government officials, our government officials, to raise the case of Nemtsov's assassination. Um, if confirmed, are you committed to raising this issue with senior Russian officials, including President Putin? Yes, I am. Um, thank you. And Russian authorities uh, continue to target the LGBTQ community uh, despite condemnation from governments around the world. Uh, will you um, commit to discussing, raising, and pressing LGBTQ rights with your Russian counterparts? Uh, enthusiastically. Um, thank you. Um, I appreciate uh, your appearing today. Uh, as a number of my colleagues uh, have testified or have mentioned in their comments, um, we need a forceful presence in Moscow. 
uh, and I appreciate that we've had this opportunity to talk today and um, look forward to working with you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, Mr. Secretary, I, I get struck by you as an honorable man, but I also get struck as someone who, in the role that you've had, uh, has played the role of see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. So I'm going to give you a chance to prove me wrong. Ambassador Sunland uh, is our United States is ambassador to the EU, is that correct? That's correct. Ukraine is not part of the European Union, is that correct? That is correct. Did you know what Ambassador Sunland was up to as it relates to Ukraine? I was aware that he had been tasked with the president with working with our other colleagues who were involved in Ukraine policy in assisting them. Now, when you responded to Senator Shaheen and to some extent Senator Kane about Rudy Giuliani and that sometimes private citizens have a role, you're not suggesting that what Mr. Giuliani did in this case was kosher, okay, or, or correct, is it? I can't, I can't offer a judgment that what he did was, was kosher or correct because I'm not sure exactly what he was up to in toto with respect to Ukraine. So you're the number two person at the State Department. You had no, you had no idea what he was doing as it relates to Ukraine, although you knew he was doing something as it relates to mm, Ukraine. I wouldn't say it, it's, it would be accurate to say I knew nothing. I was particularly aware of the campaign against our ambassador in Kiev. Outside of that, you didn't know what else he was doing. I was not aware of what he was doing or his purpose. Uh, would, you, would you say that uh, Putin and in Russia uh, there is corruption? Would you say that in Putin and Russia there is corruption? Absolutely. Uh, would you say the same thing about Mr. Orban in uh, Hungary? I think corruption is endemic across that uh, Yet region. these two people are the two people who were talking to the president about corruption in Ukraine. You also seem to suggest, and you're a very able attorney, you also seem to suggest to couch that the reason that these conversations were taking place, the money was being held, was about corruption in Ukraine. Is that a fair statement? I didn't know it at the time. I've, I'm characterizing, my characterization of what the president was saying now was that it was about anti-corruption reform. And if you would ask You're me characterizing if, his statement. Yes. So, and if but you your own ask, view, your own view, why was money being held? Uh, so as I, as I think I've said to some members of the committee, if you had asked me in July, I was aware that money was being withheld. Um, we had a number of requests. Did you, of did you ask why? Excuse me? Did you ask why money was being held? Uh, I did not. You did not. No, but I was aware that we had requests of the Ukrainian government, not just any anti-corruption reform, but energy reform and economic reform, uh, all of which was important but, to but our But none of that policy. conversation has come forth even under the president's conversation. It's all about corruption, right? That was his, that July 25th call, yes. But, in fact, the Department of Defense, in coordination with the Secretary of State, certified in May of this year, prior to this call that the president had, that Ukraine had made sufficient reform to decrease corruption and increase accountability and could ensure accountability for U.S. military equipment. As a matter of fact, that certification by the Department of Defense in cooperation with the Secretary of State, the person immediately above you, not only took place then, but it took place prior to that in July of, uh, of 
13 of 2018, and then, of course, May 23rd of 2019. Uh, so if DOD and state had already certified that Ukraine had made progress on corruption, what was left to review? For purposes of our assistance that was being provided to Ukraine, that that, that, uh, that assistance wouldn't be diverted for corrupt purposes. Now, in fact, I recall a conversation with Secretary Mattis back in, in 2018 about those issues, so, providing so what, that assistance. What did you do to dislodge the money? Nothing. What did you do to dislodge the money? To dislodge the money, I did not take uh, personally take any action. Did you call OMB? No, I had I had conversations about OMB. My my perspective was that there were a number of programs that were being uh, funding was being held for, including the Northern Triangle countries. My focus at at the time in August and into September was on the funding for the Northern Triangle countries. Okay. I was leaving it to our ambassador. Uh, Ambassador Taylor, Volker, and so forth. Um, I was informed. In fact, I went up to testify before the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Northern Triangle. Uh, I appreciate funding. that. I'm, I'm focused on the, uh, the position for which you are nominated. Yes, and, and that was the day I was was told. I was handed a note that informed me, among other things, that the Ukrainian assistance, I believe it was September 11th, had been, uh, the, the hold had been lifted. Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent to introduce into the record the letter of the Undersecretary of Defense directed to you as the Chairman of the Committee, May 23rd, 2019. Uh, no, uh, that'll be entered. Uh, Mr. Secretary, just a couple of other final questions here. Uh, isn't it true that Russia illegally occupies Crimea, continues to conduct attacks in eastern Ukraine? Absolutely. Uh, isn't it true that more than 13,000 Ukrainian troops and civilians have been killed in the conflict since 2014? I believe I testified to that isn't earlier. Isn't it true that Russia conducted a chemical weapons attack in the United Kingdom in 2018? It did, and we expelled Isn't it true Russia. that Russia assault, assaulted our elections in 2016 using cyber attacks and disinformation? Indeed. Isn't it true that Russia illegally occupies part of Georgia's territory? Part of. Isn't it true that Russia illegally occupies part of Georgia's territory? George, yes, indeed. Isn't it true that Russia's bombing campaign in Syria also involved bombing innocents? I'm sorry. I'm, it, didn't the, bomb, the, bombing the campaign, Russian bombing in Syria yes. campaign also involve bombing innocents? I believe so. Uh, now, so we've established that the Kremlin behavior continues to pose a national security threat to the United States. Congress sought to address that to the Countering America's Adversaries Who Sanctions Act that it passed 98 to 2 and the President signed into law. So does it help or hinder U.S. national security when President Trump characterizes Russia's interference as a hoax? Uh, the United States government hasn't accepted that it's a hoax. The United States government's position led by President Trump is we're dedicated to stopping it. We acknowledge that it occurs, is ongoing, and are, we're doing all we can to stop it. Does it help or hinder national security and President Trump jokes about election interference with President Putin? As I said, we are, I'm, de I'm devoting a huge amount of my time as Deputy Secretary to countering Russian election interference, and that is at the direction of the President. Does it help or hinder when uh, the President redirects millions of dollars from the European Deterrent Initiative uh, that is to help us in a deterrence to Russia uh, to pay for a border wall? That was the president's judgment on a national security priority. Yeah, so here's, here's the problem. You're going to go to Russia, 
And you're going to have, you're going to be saying one set of things based upon your testimony here today and private conversations you have with members. But we have the president who, in his public statements, is totally aligned differently than what you're going to be saying. Do you understand the, the, the incredible, difficult job that you're going to have as a result of that? Well, what I, what I would say, Senator, is, and you've cited the president's statements, I'd cite the president's actions. You mentioned the, the, um, the, nerve, the nerve agent that was used in Salisbury. We expelled 60 undeclared Russian, the president expelled 60 undeclared Russian intelligence officers in response. We've, uh, we've imposed sanctions on probably 350 uh, Russian individuals and uh, and organizations, including for under Katzen for uh, for election interference. So I think the president's actions uh, speak very loudly in this. And the Sec Secretary Pompeo has said that this administration, this president, is firmly committing to confronting Russia uh, in all these areas that you've listed. Where there have overwhelmingly, those sanctions have been forced by the hand of Congress. Uh, particularly in, in, in the legislation after having fashioned sanctions in Iran and other places, including Russia, in a way that provided very little discretion because on a bipartisan basis there was concern. Finally, let me just ask you this, because I'm trying to find a way forward on your nomination. The department that you help run has tried to block individuals from testifying before Congress, something that I find appalling because Congress, Article I of the Constitution, not Article II, not Article III, Article I of the Constitution, ultimately uh, provides as a check and balance on any administration, this or anyone uh, in, the, uh, in the future, uh, forcing them to either choose between defying Congress or their superiors. This department has sent them letters that appear aimed at scaring them out of appearing before Congress. Is this the type of support and protection you think that our public servants uh, deserve? Well, I would say that the actions that the department has undertaken, led by the secretary, has been on the advice of, of counsel, not only State Department counsel, but White House counsel as well, and direction from, from the White House. Why is the department working to prevent employees from testifying before Congress? Well, we're, uh, as, as has been laid out in a, uh, an extensive letter from the counsel to the president, the rationale is, is laid out there. Now, I understand the House is directing its request to you. Is that correct? They have issues? been, yes. Uh, now, um, I'd like to enter uh, the letter from the House to Mr. Sullivan into the record, Mr. Chairman. Have you responded to them? Uh, I don't believe so. The letter was addressed to me, but the, sec the, letter, the letter has been addressed to I personally have not. The letter has been addressed to me in the misunderstanding that the secretary has recused himself. So the secretary has not recused. The secretary has not recused. So even though these, these information requests are coming to you, you're in essence turning them over to the secretary. Correct. And that, I didn't ask that they be sent to me. They have decided to send them to me. Uh, finally, I ask a request to enter a series of letters uh, into the, the, the record uh, by a um, uh, correspondence between the, the State Department uh, and uh, members of myself and letters from myself to the State Department, all which have gone unanswered. Uh, those will be entered. Is that it, Senator Ramirez? Are you through? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Senator Cruz. 
Welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me start by observing as we sit in these august chambers from this storied committee above which the ghost of Henry Cabot Lodge, no doubt, looks down. Uh, I, I feel compelled to observe that the distinguished senator from Virginia is choosing this moment to mock me for his nationals beating my Astros last night in game six back in Houston. <laughs> And, and, and I will only say that, that there is a virtue to patience, uh, and at this time tomorrow, one or the other of us will be on the losing side of a wager and, and uh, wearing the colors of the winning team, so, so I look forward, uh, to hopefully, to 24 hours from now, uh, my good friend, Senator Kane. Can't wait to see how that comes out, either way. <laughs> uh, Mr. Sullivan, welcome. Uh, congratulations on your, your nomination. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what you did at state to merit being sent to Siberia, but, but congratulations nonetheless. Uh, I, I have every confidence that you will perform ably in this new role. Uh, let's talk about some different aspects of Russia. Uh, Russia, as you know, has a long history of using energy as a, as a weapon, and uh, one of the tools that I believe poses a real threat for strengthening Russia, for weakening Europe, and for weakening America is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, can you give me your assessment of the regional and global impact of Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline if the construction is completed? I think it's going to be uh, extremely detrimental to Ukraine. It is, going to un it is going to give the Russian Federation an enormous lever over Ukraine and a hammer that they can hit the Ukrainians with. The Ukrainians, if the, if the Russians cut gas transit through Ukraine, U Ukraine will lose billions in, in hard currency that it's desperate for, desperately needed for its economy. So the president has been as vociferous as he's been on almost any issue I've seen in opposing Nord Stream 2 and urging our NATO allies, and particularly Germany, to not cooperate in committing this pipeline because of the damage it will do to Ukraine. And we haven't succeeded to date in convincing them to stop their cooperation. As you know, this committee has, has passed by an overwhelming bipartisan margin my legislation with Senator Shaheen to stop that pipeline from being completed. But the window for passing that legislation into law and stopping it, that window is shrinking. What would the benefits be if we can finish the job and stop that pipeline from, from ever being completed? Well, we had this conversation in your office a few days ago about whether we've reached the point where the Russians can complete that pipeline because we've been saying for some time that it's over 80% complete, but construction has continued. Uh, there's been a holdup because of environmental reviews by, by Denmark, but those are not going to last forever. Those will be lifted soon. My concern is we may have already reached a point where the Russians will have the resources and the ability to complete the pipeline no matter what we do, in which case imposing sanctions now won't stop the pipeline. It will oppose a cost on Russia, to be sure, maybe a substantial cost, but it wouldn't stop the pipeline. I don't know that we have reached that point yet, though. Although the Russians lack the technology to lay the DC pipeline, so they have to rely on outsourcing. Uh, that's where I, and we discussed this, I, I think we need to discuss with some experts on that whether what they have left to do, the, the, the little stub that's left, that they, whether they could complete that on their own. They would have to re, reposition assets that, are need, that they're using elsewhere 
but given the amount that's already been invested and the length of the pipeline that's already completed, um, it may be that they are already capable of doing that. Let's shift uh, to the New START Treaty, uh, which uh, has been restricting our options and ability to defend ourselves while doing very little to modify Russia's malign behavior. Uh, the Trump administration rightly withdrew from the INF Treaty earlier this year. New START is slated to expire in February of 2021. Does the administration believe continued adherence is in the U.S. national security interest, or, or, or will, will we let the treaty lapse? Uh, our position is that we should engage with the Russians now in discussions uh, about uh, including those weapon systems, which you and I have discussed previously, which are not covered by the treaty, which President Putin has been publicizing. Um, the problem that I foresee is if we were simply to extend New START now without touching those other systems, which the Russians have been invested in, we're tying our hands and not limiting what, where the Russians see their growth in their, uh, their defense budget and their strategic assets. So one, one final question, shifting to, to another treaty, the Open Skies Treaty with Russia. Uh, I have long been skeptical about this treaty. Uh, and a couple of years ago offered language in the uh, National Defense Authorization Act conditioning U.S. compliance with it, as I have offered language on the NDAA concerning New START as well. Uh, what is your assessment of the effectiveness of the Open Skies Treaty? And, and, and I'll, in my view, it exposes vulnerabilities in terms of opening ourselves up to, to uh, monitoring in a way that, that doesn't gain us anything for Russia, but gains Russia quite a bit. What's your assessment? Um, I'm not sure I can go into great detail in an open session like this, but there are intelligence community assessments on that very question. What I've been most concerned about with is if we were to reach that decision that informed by intelligence community analysis and so forth, that it no longer was in the United States' interest to continue in the treaty, that we would need to engage in, we, the administration, a consultation process with this committee, with Congress, and with our allies, um, as we did with the INF Treaty. The most important thing, in my opinion, that we did with our withdrawal from the INF Treaty was getting unanimity at, at the NAC among our NATO allies that Russia has been and is in violation of the INF Treaty, and would need to would need to do that as well to make sure we didn't do damage to our our NATO alliance and explain why we were withdrawing if we, that decision were to be made. Thank you. Th thank you. Uh, for those of the members of the committee who haven't seen it, uh, there are briefings available uh, in a secured facility, and I would urge everybody to take a look at those, regardless. Uh, as this discussion goes forward, I think it's important everybody had the information at hand. Senator Cruz, before you got here, we had a uh, discussion giving you and Senator Shaheen credit for the uh, work on the Nord Stream 2. And uh, with all due respect, uh, I, I think regardless of whether we're past the point of no return or not, I, I think your bill needs to be pursued. And as you know, you and I are trying to find a path forward. Well, we found a path forward on that. We're going to try to make that happen. And, I think everybody's, uh, almost everyone's in agreement with that. Uh, Senator Murphy, I understand you want another bite of the apple. Oh, Senator Kane, too? Okay. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. Just a, a few more additional questions. Um, uh, you testified earlier that it is not without precedent for the president to use individuals outside of the State Department to conduct, conduct uh, conversations with foreign governments, and that is true. There is a long history of presidents seeking advice outside of the State Department and occasionally using uh, channels outside of the State Department. I would argue um, uh, that there is really no precedent for what Rudy Giuliani was doing, which was using uh, his access to the president as a means to try to score political points uh, on the president's behalf with uh, foreign nations. But um, for the purposes of this hearing, Rudy Giuliani does not actually say that he was acting simply at the direction of the president. He says he was acting at the direction of the State Department. Uh, in fact, he says, you know, who I did it at the request of, speaking about his conversations with Ukraine, the State Department, I never talked to a Ukrainian official until the State Department called me and asked me to do it. So did the State Department call Rudy Giuliani and ask him to have these conversations with Ukrainian officials? My recollection is that that's a reference to his communications with Kurt Volker. Uh, who is a State Department, uh, who is a special representative for Ukraine, and perhaps even Gordon Sondland as well. But I, I think in particular, my recollection is that quote is in reference to communications he's had with, with Kurt Volker. You nor the Secretary asked Rudy Giuliani to carry out any diplomatic efforts? I did not, and I'm not aware that the secretary did either. And so to the extent that he's reporting back to individuals, you believe he's referring to uh, the others we've discussed? Kurt Volker in particular. Yeah. Um, the second question is, I, I'm just having a little, I, I want to support your nomination. You know that I believe in you as a public servant. I'm having a little hard time understanding your um, reluctance to make a conclusion as to what the policy of the United States was over the course of the summer, um, because you've seen the July 25th transcript, you've read the testimony, you've seen the text, and I hope that you've conducted your own investigation. So let me just sort of ask the question I asked earlier again. Um, is it your understanding that it was the policy of the United States to press the Ukrainian government to conduct investigations into Burisma and alternative theories about the 2016 election interference. I, I understand that you may not have been part of these efforts, but is, is it now your opinion that that was the policy of the United States, having read the transcript of the call with the president and seen all this other evidence? So the president has been clear in his subsequent statements about there not being what the phrase that's been used is a quid pro quo. We're talking about the foreign assistance. That's not what I'm asking. I understand. You're talking about the policy. Was it, the, was it our policy to request these specific investigations related to Burisma uh, and related to relitigating or at least looking into alternative theories about the 2016 election interference. Sure. So I, I, my understanding is that there was, as part of our general anti-corruption uh, uh, policy, encouraging anti-corruption reform in Ukraine from reading the transcript of or the, the summary of the July 25th call, uh, that uh, looking at, as the chairman mentioned, that gas company and uh, board member and U.S. person involvement was certainly mentioned by the president and therefore part of U.S. policy. What the president has 
denied was that there was any quid pro quo. Do you have knowledge that the president has ever raised any other specific corruption investigations that he wishes Ukraine to undertake other than the investigation related to Joe Biden and the investigation related to the 2016 election interference? Not specific investigations, but he has been emphatic about the need for any corruption reform generally in Ukraine. I, I think, again, I think this is, as we sort of move forward on how to proceed as a Senate, um, I just don't buy this idea that there was this general interest in corruption, given the fact that the president has only raised two of these issues in the phone call. But I have no doubt that you care about the issue uh, of corruption uh, in uh, Russia, Ukraine, and the region. And I hope you pursue it vigorously, as you have testified to uh, before this committee. Thank you, Senator Murphy. I have no doubt you'll get an opportunity to express yourself in a vote on the floor on this issue at some point in time. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks for holding this hearing. And I just want to acknowledge my colleague from Texas. Um, should the Astros win tonight in Game 7, I will be wearing Astros gear and serving his staff Chesapeake Crab Cakes and Catoctin Whiskey. Should the Nationals win, continuing the already historic trend of the visiting team winning every game thus far in the series, which has never happened uh, past five games, he will wear Nationals gear and serve my staff Texas barbecue and Shiner beer. I would rather win than lose, but either way, a group of hardworking and ill-fed staffers will be having cuisine far above their station in life. So I'm going I'm to feel good about that. Is, is it permissible for me, although I've been a Marylander for almost 30 years, I am of uh, you, you know, Harry Boston get If you want to get confirmed, I think I'd stay <laughs> I mean, I, it's up to you. But no, just, I uh, just wanted to note that until tonight, the pending World Series champions are the Boston Red Sox. Ah, right. Fair enough. Um, All right, I'm afraid this nomination can't proceed. <laughs> uh, Deputy Sullivan, a couple more questions. Um, I went through a line of questions with you about it. when President Zelensky brought up sanctions, President Trump didn't say talk to the State Department and the ambassador. He said talk to Attorney General Barr and Rudy Giuliani. When President Zelensky brought up military aid, President Trump didn't say talk to the Secretary of Defense or the Ambassador. He said talk to Attorney General Barr and Rudy Giuliani. When he brought up energy and trade, he didn't say talk to Secretary of Commerce, trade rep. He said talk to Ru Attorney General Barr and Rudy Giuliani. Your explanation for that, and you're not President Trump, your understanding of it is, well, the call was about corruption. Now, if the call was about corruption, I guess I could understand the President saying talk to Attorney General Barr. But why Rudy Giuliani? I think uh, Rudy Giuliani, as the president's personal attorney and friend and outside advisor, had been talking to him about Ukraine, uh, including about, as we've discussed previously, about our mission to, to Ukraine. And but you, you stated, as far as you know, he was not pursuing any policy for the State Department, as far as you know. Uh, he was, if to the extent that he was coordinating with the State Department, he was coordinating the, with the individuals that that had been. Well, you, I, I, to the Volker extent and, that, but that's a. Do you know whether he had coordinated with them? I don't. I mean, yeah, I know he that says that he did, but do you have I, any knowledge that he was I, coordinating? I haven't spoken to to Kurt about that. Was the State Department paying Rudy Giuliani for no. for this? To your knowledge, was the U.S. government paying Rudy Giuliani no to do this work? I would be surprised. I yeah. have no idea. You know whether he was getting paid at all, whether by President Trump or the Trump campaign or haven't the third parties, haven't including the idea. foreign individuals or organizations? No, do not. don't know. Okay. Um, 
Were you involved in any discussions <coughs> about Turkey sanctions that were mandated by Congress due to the Turkish purchase, Turkish purchase of Russian air defense systems? Yes. And tell us a little bit about that. We've been frustrated here that I know. we don't think the sanctions have been put on place after the S-400 purchase. Right. Explain your involvement. So, well, I've been involved for, it's a long time now. I mean, this deal has been pending for quite some time, and working with then Secretary Mattis and, and uh, Chairman Dunford and now Secretary Esper and, and, and Chairman Milley, along with my colleagues at the State Department, as this committee well knows, the, uh, the U.S. has withdrawn Turkey from the, uh, the F-30 Pride program because of the, uh, because of the, the S-400 acquisition. The question that's on the table is uh, CATSA sanctions uh, and whether this is a significant transaction. I find it difficult to characterize it as insignificant given that we've sanctioned China for purchasing, along with aircraft, for purchasing the S-400 system. What we're wor still working to do, and we haven't reached that point yet, is to convince the Turks to undo, as a NATO ally, to undo the damage they've done already by taking this system on board before it becomes operational and starts paying Is it your aircraft. testimony today that there is still a difference of opinion within the administration about whether the purchase of the S-400 is a significant transaction? Uh, I, I, I don't know that there Well, is. when you say if it is a significant transaction, then statutorily the CATSA sanctions come into place. Correct. It's only if it's not a significant transaction. Cor correct. Is there, is there a difference of opinion that you're what, aware of within the administration about whether this purchase was a significant transaction? I haven't been involved in the legal discussions about parsing the statutory mm -hmm. language. I'm giving you my impression from my, my participation in the discussion. Let me, let me ask one more question. Um, Last week, in response to a question from Senator Menendez, <coughs> State Department Syria envoy uh, Jeffrey testified that he was not consulted prior to the President's decision to withdraw U.S. troops from the Kurdish region of northern Syria. Do you know if anyone at the State Department was consulted prior to that decision? I believe the Secretary, at a minimum, was involved. Are, are, do you know for certain, based I, on conversations with him, that he was? I've had conversations with him about it, and it was certainly it's certainly been the case for anybody involved in Syria policy that it was well known the president's desire to withdraw our troops from Syria. This has been a topic of discussion going back last year, yeah, years, inclu including uh, December of 2018, when mm -hmm. Secretary Mattis resigned. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. With that, uh, our sincere thanks. Uh, we, uh, th I think this has been a, a productive discussion and uh, focused uh, our view of uh, some of these issues and uh, your help is uh, greatly appreciated. For the informa information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Again, thank you for your service. Thank you for your agreement to serve further. Thank you to your family for the sacrifice it's gonna take. This committee will be adjourned.